At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. One of the most rewarding parts of the ghost towning season of the modern West has been connecting with our listeners from all over the world. One of those avid fans was a representative from the Rural America Chamber of Commerce. It's a newly minted organization that's mission is to represent rural places as they strive to improve their economies. Their executive director, Sherry Powell, contacted us about partnering on an extra episode, and we put our heads together. What we decided to do was invite some of the characters from Ghost Towning as well as some other folks working on and thinking about how to save small-town America, and host a roundtable discussion about how to reverse ghost-towning. For Wyoming Public Media and PRX, this is The Modern West, exploring the evolving identity of the American West. I'm Melody Edwards. It turned out to be an incredible conversation, with all the panelists really riffing on each other's ideas. We streamed the conversation live on Facebook, and now, here we are, bringing it to your podcast feed. I start by introducing everybody. For those of you who have been listening to Ghost Towning, you're going to recognize the name Samuel Western. He is the author of a book that I really love called Pushed Off the Mountain, Sold Down the River. Here it is, right on my bookshelf, (laughs) one of my favorites. Um, And it really has shaped my understanding of the economic history of the American West. But he's also the author of numerous other books, including the novel Canyons and a book of prose poetry, A Random Census of Souls. And he has a new book of nonfiction coming out soon called A Reckoning in August. Samuel gave me a great definition of what a ghost town is that I use throughout the podcast. A ghost town is one that has lost its post office and its school. Thanks for joining us, Samuel. You have some really great examples of towns that have come back from the brink of dying. And I wonder if you could tell us about some of them and kind of how they did it. To me, the towns uh, that, have, that have come back or have decided that they want to change their narrative, I would say there were a couple commonalities. One is they understand that commodities aren't the cake itself they're the icing on the cake which we all want ranchers having a sawmill is great but it can't be the economic driver because technology just as just as this unmerciful march on everything including agriculture on on logging on on timber mills uh the second thing is they are they are collaborative they are not afraid to get disparate groups together to solve problems Next, um, Caroline Blakely is the president and CEO of the organization Rebuilding Together. It's a program that works to make sure that people can stay in their homes by working to bring neighbors together to make sure that homes are safe and healthy. They've done a lot of this work in rural places and received federal funds specifically to address the housing crisis in small towns. I know that my hometown of Walden, there's a lot of people and many of them are elderly that are living in unsafe housing. 
But Caroline, it sounds like that your work goes beyond just like home repairs. You're simultaneously working to repair communities as well. Yes, thank you. And thank you for having me on this panel. And thank you, Samuel, for just pointing out, I think, the, the vital nature of the communities getting together. Um, we have found in, in our work across the country, but most especially in rural communities, that you have to have a coming together in order to really address what we're addressing, which are some of the housing issues. And as you said, Melody, the housing issues in rural America are far worse than one may think. Of all of the households across the country, probably over 35% are in rural communities with inadequate and, or substandard housing. We know that Native American homes, at least 25% of them have at least one danger in them, mold, lead pipes, or poor ventilation. So we know that these homes in these rural communities are really unstable, uh, not safe, and lead to uh, chronic health conditions. And we also know that there's far many more challenges in rural communities than sometimes in urban. The money, the federal dollars usually goes to urban. There's more aging population in rural uh, communities. The housing stock is usually older in these communities. Communities lack the workforce or skill set or volunteers that have the time to really uh, help one another uh, to make their homes or their community centers safer places to be. And now uh, next, I'd like to introduce you to Charles Durrett. He reached out to me after hearing the podcast and told me about his book called Revitalizing Our Small Towns, Recent Examples from Southern France, and how it might be applied to the problems here in the American West. Charles has been thinking a lot about community for a long time. He actually told me that he coined the term co-housing. And since then, a movement has built up around the idea of sustainable community. Charles, I wonder if you would tell us this amazing story of these towns in Southern France and, and how they went about trying to save themselves. Thank you. So in uh, about 2000, the, uh, the area called Luberon, which is part of Provence, created a cooperative among 77 towns. And that cooperative only had one goal, which was to revitalize those 77 towns. They were having a mass exodus. Towns were going from 3,000 to 800 you know, 1,500 to uh, 250, over and over again, one town after another. So they decided that, you know, volunteerism uh, alone wasn't going to save those towns. And uh, they were getting empty and people were buying houses for a dollar from out of, out of the country, et cetera. So they decided to hire a covey of professionals and, as a cooperative. They voted, those 77 towns voted to establish a cooperative that would allow those 77 towns to work together. And what that meant is, for example, they would have one architect that could go, was available for each town for when they wanted to, you know, somebody wanted to rebuild something and couldn't afford an architect, but they wanted to keep it in the old character. Of course, a big part of their problems was that, you know, new structures were not as interesting as the old structures and that those towns were waning even as a tourist attraction. They, they had a very distinct 12-step process to bringing back those towns. One was making sure that industry was welcome in their towns. So for example, in one small town, they introduced, they allowed a new and gave all kinds of incentives for a new winery to be built right in the middle of town. And of course, earlier people were always afraid of having 
industry right in the middle of town. But once they got used to it, they realized how many new jobs that ended up keeping the store open, that ended up keeping the cafes open, and some of the workers moved there and therefore kept the schools open. So keeping the cars from continuing to encroach to downtown, which meant there was at least some walkable part of town, at least some farmer's market and other attractions to downtown that would bring people from the region to the small town. Um, try to pool parking, not downtown, so that people would could walk comfortably downtown. Very clearly these towns welcomed not only the seniors to stay in town, but as an economic vehicle, welcomed senior housing projects, which were usually just 20 to 30 units. And they did not look like regular, you know, apartment building senior housing projects. They designed them to be very, you know, quaint and, and carefully appointed so that they, they made everybody feel comfortable. They didn't make people feel like I'm moving from a single family house now to a, a senior housing project. In fact, we're moving to another kind of village, but a village in the village. So it was a village in the village was a, a common uh, approach to getting things done. Thank you so much, Chuck. Yeah. Um, now, um, I'd like to move on to Jane LaFleur. Um, my hometown of Walden, Colorado is working on a truly unique strategy for revitalizing itself. They applied to get into a program called Community Heart and Soul. They actually kind of snuck into it through the back door. But if you listen to the podcast, uh, you'll remember that I interviewed Jane and she described the steps that towns can take to engage their citizens and so that they can set realistic goals to revitalize their communities. And so Jane, I wonder if you could just kind of walk us through the Community Heart and Soul approach. Sure, thank you, Melody. Um, Community Heart and Soul is a program for small cities and towns across the United States, and it's to build stronger, healthier, and more economically vibrant cities and towns. Uh, it's based on three basic principles. Uh, those are to involve everyone, to focus on what matters, and to play the long game. It's a four-phase process, and it takes about 18 months to two years. It's resident-driven, which means that it's bottom-up, it's not top-down. But we do want to see the involvement of government, too, because often things that come out of this process are, are actions that can be taken by government. But mostly, we see what comes out of this four-phase process is something that the community can do for itself. This program has been is being run in 19 states already and in at almost 100 cities and towns across the US. It has about 12 or more years of history and field testing. It's a model that was developed and funded by Lyman Orton, who's the proprietor with his three sons of the Vermont Country Store. And he really was concerned about how decisions were being made in communities that did not reflect the hopes and dreams and ideas of the entire community. One of the first things you do is you identify who lives, works, and plays in your community. And you decide on ways to reach the missing voices in the community. People that don't come to uh, city council meetings or the whatever your governing body is, um, who are the missing voices that really have a stake in the community, but they don't necessarily participate in government. So you, you, we help you and your coach helps you find ways to reach those missing voices. 
And by listening to those stories of each other, we learn what matters most to those people. So we pull data out of those stories and that data is turned into heart and soul statements, which are really the guiding statements for that community because it's what we start to hear over and over and over from community members. And those become the principles that people agree on. And we find that when people hear each other's stories and they listen to each other, that they have a lot more in common than they thought they did. And instead of thinking people on the other side of town think differently than I do, or we have all these divisions in our town, we start finding things that people can agree on and have in common. Um, and I just want to pick up on something that you that you said, because I think that this is something that's really important is really trying to get diverse people from the community. I know that in my town, there's what there's a gal who has been sitting on the city council since I can remember, I mean, just forever. And it's because there's not a lot of people stepping up to sort of fill her the need. Um, and so I wonder if we might be able to just kind of open up to the round table here and talk a little bit about how we can start to attract diversity um, to participate and, and engage in our communities. Uh, maybe I could start with you, Caroline. It seems like that might be something that you have been working on. Yeah, we really have. What has happened over the last few years that I've been doing this is it has to almost happen to them for them to care about it. So that as our parents are aging, when that happens to you, you get educated and start knowing about it and then start caring about it. When your child has asthma because of a household problem, when you trip and fall and can't and go to the hospital because of something in your house, um, you start caring about it and you start then caring about the needs of others. Because if it's happening to you, it's happening to your neighbor. And so what we've seen quite a bit in, in getting diversity and getting more voices is, is telling the local community story. So it's tricky, especially when you're talking about somebody's home, uh, because very few people go behind the screen door like we do. If you can loosen that up and make people um, believe in what you're doing is really there to help them and make them have a better life and know their neighbors better, um, you'll have much more diversity in, in your helping group. And you know, I wonder if another reason that there that there tends to be like a lack of participation uh, in some of these small towns is just they have these really tiny budgets. And I actually had a, a lawmaker in Wyoming reach out to me and ask that specific question: What what can we do to sort of help finance some of these dream projects, goals that, that these towns are wanting to make, but they just might be a little stuck? And um, Samuel, I wonder if you might be able to tackle that one. I know that that's something that you've Really looked into is the economics of how these towns work. You know, it's always been interesting. I mean, because I sort of write about economic history, I'm always interested in assessed valuation. And why am I assessed in assessed valuation? Because that's what builds schools. And that's why when you, suddenly you start looking at county economic profiles, you see this assessed valuation going like this. It's like, uh oh, you know, what can we do? And how do we how do we not pass that point where the school closes or the post office closes? Again, I'd go back to places like Winnet, which have sort of drawn a line in that clay soil and said the narrative of the disappearing Mountain West town stops here. And here's how it stops. One other thing is they have four county commissioners. They got an annual salary of $3,300 each. 
they gave it up. They gave it up so they could help pay for school expenses. Now, I'm not saying that's, that's more like a martyr, but it's, and I asked this county commissioner, but I said, I didn't really think much about it. That, that's what we had to do, you know? And you know, if I may, I, I think there's this narrative that splits and it's, it's a demographic narrative. And that is, there are people who are, who are older, want to retire, come to a small town, have all the issues that we've, we've heard and hear about medical care and housing. And then there's the other demographic that have kids. And how, how do we balance that in these small towns? The needs of seniors, I'm using that term very loosely, versus the needs of young parents that need daycare, they need viable schools. And I just think that, the, I think there was, Jane talks about things that really matter. Schools really matter, but then so does a hospital. Hospitals really matter to these small towns. Yeah, and we've talked uh, in our in our conversations in the past. We've talked about how hospitals can really start to be an anchor business. And you're starting to see a trend, and I think it's a good one, where you have these large health organizations, and they're coming into towns, and they're not starting a hospital; they're starting clinics, and that's a great first step. It's much easier to get a staff. It's easier to get a PA or a nurse practitioner leader than it is to get an MD oftentimes. One of the things that they did in Lebron, those 77 towns, one professional that they hired. So it wasn't just about bolstering up the institutions, which is critical, but it was also about um, making sure that lots of social experiences were happening that were not chasing the young people out of town. So one of the professionals they hired was a a counselor of sorts that went to all 77 towns and met with the police departments of each of those towns so that they were not overtly or even accidentally harassing young kids or teenagers. Because so often over and over again, you hear the teenagers say that they really want to move out of town as soon as possible. And it usually has to do with the heavy handedness of the institutions that are in town there. So to have this professional go to every single police station and say, this is where you don't hassle the kids because when they're not really breaking the law and or overtly breaking the law and even meeting with the judges to make sure that those kids are not uh, overly punished. I mean, I grew up in a town of 325 uh, people. And when I was in high school, one of the kids was busted for having marijuana, you know, like a little bit of marijuana. And sure enough, the unfortunately smartest kid in our high school committed suicide because he couldn't stand the shame. And that shame is another thing that comes with the small town. It's a beautiful thing when it works, all the accountability, sense of belonging, and a sense of uh, appreciation for your neighbors is great. But you have to be careful about shame. And that cultural worker was able to help the police make sure that they did not, were not too over heavy-handed. After this break, we continue the conversation. If you are liking what you're hearing, and actually, hey, even if you don't, we would love to hear about it. Take a moment right now to leave a rating or review on your podcast app. It'll help new listeners discover the modern West so that we can keep bringing you stories about the evolving identity of the American West. Hey, thanks, y'all. This season of the Modern West is sponsored by the Argosy Foundation, committed to supporting diverse people and programs that make society a better place to live. More information is available at argosyfnd.org. 
The Argosy Foundation is a philanthropic organization focused on leveraging the impact of people and organizations working to make the world a better place, employing creative and entrepreneurial approaches that help people to help themselves. Argosy works to ensure that their partners become successfully self-sustaining. The intention of this work is to solve systemic problems, build teams and communities, create replicable solutions, and inspire others to contribute in their own ways. To learn more about this mission and the Argosy's work, visit argosyfnd.org. One of the questions I wanted to ask everybody is um, about this idea that, that Chuck has brought to the table of towns kind of working together, collaborating. And I just wonder, in the American West, we have sort of these ideas of the rugged individual and we're sort of isolated and competitive. Would that even work? Most of our heart and soul projects are individual towns, but not all of them. And I, I'm in Maine actually right now. And one of the, there was a four town heart and soul process. It was called the Mahusik project, which is named after the mountain range in Western Maine. And Bethel, Maine was the larger town and three very small towns surrounding it. And they decided to jointly do the heart and soul process and come up with one set of heart and soul statements, but make sure they listen to people in all fault for communities. As a result, and I was just interviewing the project coordinator yesterday, but as a result, for the first time in history, the four town councils or select boards sat down together and had a joint meeting and started to talk about cost sharing. Remarkable things can happen when towns start to collaborate. I mean, it, it is pretty amazing. And so, so Samuel, what do you think? Do you think in the American West that towns could do this, collaborate? Uh, yes, I, it's already happening. I mean, you are seeing uh, Silver Bow County in Montana uh, that they have a collaboration between county and city government. You just saw in Sundance, Wyoming, they have now, they have shut down their police department and now Crook County is overseeing safety. And these, these are perforce of necessity. And I don't necessarily think this is a bad thing, you know, because it really forces that you get rural constituency and urban, lowercase u, to work together. I, I really see that Places that are making a difference, they are. You're seeing more joining of, t of town and county governments, more uh, sort of collaboration between, okay, we haven't got a jail and we have to by state statute. So can we use your jail? I mean, that sounds really simple, but it forces people to get together and talk about stuff. And can we borrow your snowplow if you don't mind? You know? <laughs> so it's already happening. Yeah, yeah. What, what we have found is the unfortunate silver lining um, often starts with a disaster. So when a disaster hits, uh, real collaboration among small towns, especially um, with the increase in the tornadoes in places where there are a lot of small towns, the flooding that's happening, not only on the Gulf, but on the East Coast as well. None of those towns are resilient. None of them have preparedness plans enough to some uh, to withstand some of the climate issues that they're that they're facing yeah even if people do want to move to some of these towns 
there's just no housing there. And I think probably Caroline, um, this is one that you're going to be able to really discuss is just where to go in terms of, you know, these towns being able to become welcoming by having places for people to live. Yeah, days. it's tough. It's tough because uh, there's, there's not going to be a lot of money thrown at this problem because aff affordable housing is, is viewed mostly as an urban, an urban issue. So I think really looking at what the housing stock is and figuring out can you can you as chuck pointed out how they were reusing the existing housing stock in france can you do the same thing um, in these small towns and um, focus all your efforts and focus the community whether it's the local money the state money that could flow through that's federal help but you know use some of those grant monies to focus on repairing what's there, it's typically more affordable than new, and it's typically more character than new, and um, it gives people the reason to want to be in town. Sometimes you just you don't realize the unintended things that you didn't you know you didn't expect. Like, do you require only single-family homes in a part of your community, and you don't allow them to become duplexes? Or do you the ADU the whole yeah yeah ADU. accessory dwelling units? You know, are you not allowing uh, what used to be called a granny flat or a mother-in-law or in-law apartment or something like or your college-age kid apartment on the same lot? You know, are you requiring excessive parking standards so there's not space? Are your setbacks so big that you know you couldn't possibly add an addition on that would be an additional unit and so on and so on. And there's lots of ways that you can look at your own requirements that might've been fine 100 years ago or 50 years ago, but maybe now they're keeping our kids from coming back home and living in our communities because there's nothing that is affordable. Yeah, yeah, and that's I, exactly where I wanted to go next. Uh, of course, that's the elephant in the room when it comes to rural uh, revitalization is how can we address the brain drain and, and really make these communities as welcoming to the young people that grow up there as we possibly can? And I know you probably all have thoughts on this. Um, I'll, I'll take volunteers. You know, how do we bring young people back into our communities and how do we keep them here? And, you know, I kind of believe they, they need to go away and come back. But you know, we also, I mean, housing is a basic need and we know that that's the first thing, but uh, there are other things that young folks want that we need to ask them, you know, what, what is it, what would it take to bring you to this community? And we often hear it's that coffee shop, it's good Wi-Fi, it's broadband, you know, it's, it's, can I stay connected to folks? Are, is there, are there more other other young people there, not just me? So, you know, how do we start to build that kind of community that welcomes all kinds of folks and allows those things to happen? Samuel, do you feel like uh, in the West that, you know, young people are sort of drawn to, to move back to their small towns, that there's like this attraction to maybe the lifestyle of the West? I think they are, but there has to be a critical mass. And... Melly, this is something else. This sounds like a carte blanche statement, but I've covered the West for 35 years as a reporter. I would say if there's one statement to help juvenile small towns is make them welcoming for women. And you go to our small town, who runs the county clerk's office? Who runs all these offices? It's women. 
women make up the backbones of all these towns and I want their daughters and their granddaughters to be there. So make the town welcoming for women. That means, you know, extra emphasis on service sector jobs, not commodity because in the West, we tend to be really patriarchal. Commodity jobs are dominated by men and I don't want to go into sort of any gender rhetoric, but I just, if you can, we can make towns more welcoming for women in town housing most of the time, childcare, so important just critical in schools. But if we focused on welcoming women to small towns, things would happen. Right, and, um, I think that we probably want to start turning to some of the questions that I'm guessing we're uh, starting to get. Uh, okay, here I've got one. What role do you think that the arts are playing in revitalizing some of these small rural towns? Yeah, that's a great question because you know, our, our town has actually turned into a bit of a, a artist uh, uh, enclave. And um, it's so wonderful to see people who feel like they could work anywhere. They don't have to work in the um, high priced real estate of uh, San Francisco, a couple hundred miles away, um, but can take their art there. Uh, I think it's a great thing. If you, but again, it's a critical mass, you know, having enough artists to make you feel like you have the peers like uh, teenagers need. <laughs> Yeah, I, I think I agree. And the arts are have a tremendous role in revitalizing small towns. I mean, you think of all the spin-off industries that are having to do with the arts and the appeal to so many generations of folks, whether it's, you know, music or art, you know, it becomes a hub. Um, I've also seen old buildings get renovated for artist use. They're, they're wonderful generators of jobs and income and you know, economic development and community development. Here's a question on Facebook from Trey Sherwood, one of our uh, lawmakers. She's also the Main Street Director in, in Laramie. Um, she's asking, how do you address volunteer burnout in small towns with 10% of the people doing 90% of the work that just isn't sustainable? Caroline, you wanna tackle that one? I bet. Yeah, yeah, we, we absolutely have that problem because we have a lot of our affiliates are all volunteer, which means that they're serving with all hats on. So they're on the board, they're doing the projects, they're talking to homeowners, they're doing it all. And we actually um, try to get them away from it for a while and talk about recruiting others and taking a breather because you're gonna get burned out. And what you don't wanna do is get burned out and have the whole effort stop because it was all about you. It can't be all about one individual. We try very hard to train people make sure there's succession planning, make sure you're talking about it with others and then make sure you take a break. Yeah, I'll uh, echo that. And also just to, you know, bringing people in for little tiny tasks rather than a two year comprehensive planning process, which is painful. And in, instead, like what are the small projects that you can do that bring in volunteers on their time schedule? Maybe it's working from home. Maybe it's entering data. Maybe it's taking photos and posting things on Facebook. Maybe it's creating videos. Maybe it's interviewing your neighbors, um, whatever those things are. So it doesn't necessarily have to be a 40-hour volunteer job. Um, a question from uh, Megan Torgensen, who is the host of another really great 
podcast, Reframing Rural. I highly recommend it. We're going to be sharing one of their episodes coming up as well. Her question's great. Do the panelists have any examples of rural communities they've worked with that have specifically worked to become more welcoming to people of color and migrant workers? We have to recognize the immigrant communities as providing some of the you know, the, the fabric of our community. And, you know, we talk about losing young people. There are young immigrant communities that need places to live and work. And um, so I think we have to be more welcoming. Yeah. And I feel like the elephant in the room really is just racism. I mean, small towns, the small town that I grew up in, people were flat out prejudiced, period. And um, we have to bring that to the forefront from a consciousness point of view. We just have to get our youth turned around, around, you know, it's not okay, basically. And that's going to be education. And, and again, I would love to see some free-floating professionals able to go to small towns and accomplish that because um, those small towns are not, are too often not getting that accomplished. A couple of people are asking about entrepreneurs, you know, getting, attracting them and um, to and getting them to invest in rural towns and to have more reliable internet. What we need to do to make sure that the gig economy can start to move in, especially post-pandemic. It's tough because there's not consumer bases in these towns, right? So if you're bringing in a, an economy or a gig economy, it really has to be something that is accessible by consumers outside of that area. And that's that's a very specific target and hard nut to crack, I would think. In the rural West, especially, where there's can be hundreds of miles between towns. I mean, if you are an internet server, why on earth would you go and put cable to this town? You're just never, the payoff is gonna be so long. And I think what Jane's talking about, which I really commend, is when a community says, no, we're not gonna wait. This is vital to us. So they make the effort, they collaborate, they get partners, they built it themselves. There are limitations to this, but I think also it means you stop being passive and you stop being the victim. Thanks again to everybody for joining in. Have Thank a great you. day. Thank you, Melody, Bye -bye. very much. That was great. Ciao. I hope you enjoyed this special roundtable discussion with author Samuel Western, Rebuilding Together President Caroline Blakely, author Charles Durrett, and Community Heart and Soul spokesperson Jane LaFleur. Many thanks go out to Sherry Powell with the Rural America Chamber of Commerce for partnering with us on this episode. Did this conversation give you ideas for more solutions to rural decline? We'd love to hear them. Share them on social media. We're at Modern West Pod. I'm Melody Edwards. Aaron Jones is our story editor. Anna Rader is our digital producer. Our theme song is by Screen Door Porch. The Modern West is a production of PRX and Wyoming Public Media. One of our goals is to get a dialogue flowing about the stories that we're telling. We're hoping that you'll join the conversation. So connect with us on social media and let us know what your thoughts are, whether you agree with what you're hearing or not. We're at Modern West Pod on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. That's Modern West Pod.